Welcome to Obstetric Anesthesia Basics, a short podcast series for anesthesia trainees new to obstetric anesthesia. NZ? Hi everyone. Hey Didge. We're recording. Oh no. <laughs> Hi everyone. Welcome back. Just a little brief interlude before we start today. Um, just, I just realised before we started, uh, sat down to record this next episode that we've, this will probably be episode number 100, which is a um, bit of a milestone. Yeah! <laughs> 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 I'm trying to turn all the sound effects off. <laughs> One of them was, wasn't a real sound effect. Uh, that was me. Yes. That was a real sound effect. No, that was yeah. me. <laughs> Congratulations, um, Roger. Congratulations, what Roger. What an effort. What an achievement. What a hero. Well, thank, thanks for everyone who's um, helped out, especially you, Graham. You've, you're sort of, you know, you're semi-famous. Uh, my daughter was listening to a podcast uh, episode with her friends at school, which is, I'm sure, not sure why, but then they said, who's this guy, Graham? <laughs> um, you keep introducing him as a guest, but he's on every episode, Roger. I'm pretty sure he's more than a guest. <laughs> he is more than a guest. Yeah. So... And his new nickname, well, actually not his new nickname, we, oh. just, we just discovered oh, that his nickname when he was working in New Zealand many years ago in Whangarei was Didgeridoo. Used to page him, uh, G'day Digi, can you come and put in the lure? <laughs> no, they never said that, they said, hey Didge, Didge, <laughs> hey, we Didge. need a lure. <laughs> hey Didge, come and put in an IV. Put in a lure. <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, anyway, thanks thanks for everyone for helping out. Uh, well th- done, Roger. Thanks for everyone who's been listening, especially... Um, the two people who listened to the first episodes. Hopefully no one goes back and listens to those because I'm not going <laughs> to. August the 23rd, 2017. So it's been five years. I didn't realise it was wow. such a long time. I really want to know how you started um, podcasting. Um, I can't actually remember, but I do remember that um, I listened to a few podcasts. Um, Casey Parker had, has a podca- had a podcast and I was listening to that and then um, I listened to some other medical ones and I thought, oh, this sounds like a good idea. I don't think I realised how much work it would be. So at the time, I'm not very IT savvy, and then uh, I sort of started trying to set it all up, and then I got halfway through, and I was like, oh, my God, this is so much hard work. <laughs> I was watching all these YouTube videos and getting nowhere, but I sort of started, so I had to keep going. In the first few episodes, it was just me talking. They sounded terrible. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I'm not really so selling much like it, that. I? I'm not selling it. Anyway. Well, the first time I ever listened to a podcast was in about 2010. Yeah, and I had an old, um, you know, one of those silver, what were they iPods. called? iPods. Yep. And it was when I was um, transitioning from uh, my general practice rural days to my anaesthetic training days, and I thought I don't know any physiology. Well, you know, I've forgotten everything I've learned, and I started listening to physiology podcast, and of course the famous Scott Weingart's um, Oh yes, Creek yeah, yeah. podcast. Yep. And, and that was uh, the start of my journey. Yeah, I think I think I just found um, that listening to podcasts, you know, because you had to, I don't know, I, I said have to do a lot of housework and menial chores. I don't have time to watch a video or read read books, mm. so I just thought uh, listening to stuff is so easy to while well, you're mowing the lawn or driving somewhere. Just um, yeah, I think uh, I just thought, oh, we should I should try and do some podcasts with uh, some of the guys at uh, at work and. Didn't think it would be um, quite as much effort to set it up. Must admit, once you've got it going, it's not that hard. 
And that was under, your, <laughs> and that was under your, your interest your, with your interest in education. Yeah, 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 yeah. And being famous. No, <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm not famous. You're I a hero. You're my, a hero in many ways. One of my other daughters right. goes, how many people have listened to episodes? And I said, oh, there's a couple of hundred. And she goes, is that all? <laughs> Put me in my place. Yeah, famous. Yeah. famous if, only, if only you were on TikTok or, yeah. you know, one of those. Graham, I th- um, I've... Been re- the stacks reached out to us and they want us to come and open an opera <laughs> open a in the city. <laughs> they in want the us city. to sell some t-shirts <laughs> in the city on the weekend. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. All right, thanks. Yeah. Any, any, thanks, Rog. Thanks, Rog. I didn't even prepare a dad joke. Probably should have had one for this episode, but well, maybe next time. Thanks. Uh, yes. Hi, everyone. We're um, uh, we've changed the team a little bit, so we just had uh, Graham's. Been substituted out for Matt, who's who's now upgrade, upgraded, yeah, substituted, yeah. Digi, Digi, Digi is gone. That's his nickname when he worked in Whangarei, New Zealand. It's short for Didgeridoo. (laughs) 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 Which reminds me of my best friend at high school, who who was um, born in New Zealand. When he went to primary school in the UK, he was he was called Kiwi for his whole (laughs) life, and then he came back to New Zealand, and we we called him Pom for the rest (laughs) for the rest of his high school career. Couldn't escape that. Poor guy. <laughs> so today we've assembled. We're gonna. Um, this is the second, uh, the following episode. So we did talk about uh, management of obstetric hemorrhage or major hemorrhage, and uh, we were going to use some or discuss some cases uh, to use them as sort of examples of um, some of the learning points that we went over. Um, I was going to give everyone a bit of a disclaimer. So we, we're going to change. So even though the, the cases we're discussing, we're going to change some aspects of them so they're not actually uh, real, completely real cases that people can relate to. But um, we won't change the bits that we feel are important to learning. You know, the learning points that we want to demonstrate, those are true events that happened. But the other details are, are probably going to be altered a little bit. So please don't take these as, um, as real cases that you can identify someone from. And I think Matt... Um, we're even going to refer to a few cases that have been published in um, the, the CMAS reports, is that right? Mm. Yeah, from the maternal inquiries. Maternal inquiries, which is also, um, if, if anyone wants, I'll try and put some links to those. Um, was there anything else in the lead-up spiel? Yep. Uh, disclaimer, we recorded the obstetric hemorrhage podcast a couple of months ago, and I can't remember. Um, <laughs> we should have had to listen to it again <laughs> before we do this case, but... Um, that's not how we roll. <laughs> We're a little bit more We're very professional. We could say laid back, but probably a better adjective is, is disorganised than that. <laughs> Who wants to go first with um, a brief description of a case where they thought there were some learning points? Oh, I don't mind. Everyone's looking at me. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I remember a case I had um, where I was on call as a consultant here and... Uh, um, it was after hours. I got phoned up and said um, they wanted to open a second theatre. And can I come in? This the, the the anaesthetic registrar was busy with a cesarean in one theatre, and they they needed um, someone to come in for a code blue Caesar, which was coming up to the other theatre. So I drove in. I don't live that far away. And as I <coughs> came out of the change room, I saw someone run. You know, one of the anaesthetic technicians running into the second theatre. Um, so I went in, and when I got in there, I saw that there, there was a uh, a patient in there, and she. Um, she just didn't look very good and I could see on the monitor that her heart rate was like 150 or something like that the registrar who was 
on that night was already drawing up some ketamine and and um, and uh, no one seemed to really know much about this person except that um, there was a fetal bradycardia as well um, and then but I was concerned about the maternal tachycardia anyway we did a general anaesthetic we induced uh, we, uh, uh, we had some fluids running and um, we in, induced with some ketamine and some sucks and put a tube in and I think the first blood pressure after induction was like 50 over 30. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God. You know, the SATS probe wasn't picking up anything. Uh, I think someone just, as soon as as soon as soon they went to sleep, someone made an incision and opened their abdomen and there was just, they just looked up and there was like blood everywhere. And um, I can remember asking the one of the obstetric team to just make a fist and push on the aorta. Um, and then... Um, we, we gave some volume resuscitation, obviously called for blood products. Um, but just, you know, within a, within literally about 30 seconds of compressing on the aorta, her blood, you know, and with a bit of resuscitation with, I think, um, some fluids and a bit of metaraminol, her blood pressure came back up and we got a reasonable number on the, on the, um, uh, on the non-invasive cuff. So I think the, my, my first learning point was, and I've seen this use, this technique is, uh, of manual aortic compression to just get control of the situation where there's like torrential sort of life-threatening bleeding. That's probably the main learning point I've, I had from this case. Yeah, so I can tell you, that, you know, the details of the rest of the case, but basically we discovered that she'd ruptured her uterus. She was a VBAC. Had ruptured her uterus, and that's why there was a fetal bradycardia. And um, it took us uh, a while to resuscitate her, and they um, had to, you know, deliver this baby and um, stitch her uterus back together. We gave um, some O-negative blood, some fibrinogen concentrate, some tranexamic acid, we just gave that empirically. We didn't have time to wait for blood test results showing any abnormalities. We decided that things were a bit too extreme. She was a bit too much of an extremist to worry about that. <coughs> um, Can I ask, Roger, how yeah. long you kept the compression on the aorta? Yeah, so um, I think it was a good was probably <coughs> three to five minutes at first until we got um, some O-negative blood up and we'd... Um, you got some uh, resus- some fluid into resuscitator volume-wise, and um, um, then I think we did um, you know did take it off, and then we reapplied it at certain points. So it's, it's something you can apply and, re- and and reapply if required as required. And and um, you know for anyone out there listening and thinking about how to do this, have yeah. you got any tips on how to do this? Do you just do it with a fist or with a gauze? <coughs> or? So I think. Um, <coughs> at the time, we just at, at the time, you know, with the abdomen open, it was quite easy for the surgical team, someone who was in the surgical team, to palpate the aorta because it's mm-hmm. you know there, just above the uterus in the midline. You can it's pulsatile, and then you can just push on it, and you can feel when it's occluded and when it's not. Um, but you don't have to have an open abdomen; you can do it. And uh, uh, a woman who's had a, you know an obstetric hemorrhage and had who's had a vaginal delivery, um, if you feel the top of the or the fundus of their uterus. Um, Usually at the level of the umbilicus and just underneath, you can palpate the um, aorta, and it's it's usually slightly off to the um, left. I think is that right? Vena cava is on the right. I, I hope I haven't got that wrong. <laughs> you guys are putting pressure on me. <laughs> um, but actually, just, yeah. you just actually just push in the midline because you can feel the mm-hmm. pulsatile vessel. Um, and if you really want to follow the, um, um, <coughs> some of these um, sort of 
teaching videos that are out there on the internet, you, if you if you can, you can palpate the femoral pulses and you press until the femoral you lose pulsation in the in the femoral artery. But I don't think, yeah, I, th- I think in the heat of battle, where you just really sort of, um, mm. yeah, just just get whoever's yeah, available. You probably don't d- want the least inexperienced. You don't yeah. want a super inexperienced person either. But then again, you're probably the most experienced surgeon is busy doing other things so it definitely buys time of, of you know similar to what you've said in um, undiagnosed placenta accretors or um, so many situations where we've used that as well just to buy time for us to either put lines in resuscitate the patient um, yep. Yep. very helpful that's right yeah and we, we we use that time to get blood up um, yeah to set up a blood warmer because you don't want to bang in lots of cold blood um, so you've got fluid warming devices uh, set up by your your assistants or your techs, um, and then placing an arterial line and, a big, and some bigger IV cannulas, you know, all those things take time, and you've got to buy time. Um, so stopping the bleedings um, while you're doing all that is, is very useful. Mm. And there's always an assistant um, surgeon mm. in yep. the abdomen. And, um, yep. Yeah, I've, I've had good experiences of yep. seeing this intervention work well. Yep. Okay. Anyone got any other cases? They want just, to well, just on a slight segue from opening up an abdomen full of blood yep. in, a, in a pregnant woman, it does remind me of some of the cases in the confidential inquiry reports um, into maternal deaths. Um, and I remember there was a, <clears throat> a lady that presented with abdominal pain, um, a tense, tender abdomen at term, and the diagnosis of a abruption was made. Uh, the fetal heart rate was poor and she was taken to theatre. And similar to your case, Roger, the abdomen was opened and a lot of fresh blood was observed, but it wasn't coming from the uterus. Yes. Um, any thoughts? Splenic artery? Yeah, very yeah. good. Yeah. Did we mention this in the other I can't recording? Remember. I think we was might have. at least two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> it was two months ago. I was, just, I was clearly listening but, but to it's, you, um, yeah. yeah, so it's something to, 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 to be aware yeah. of right. um, because it's something that, you know, I think obstetricians aren't thinking about. Yeah. Um, I think we did mention this because um, we also talked about liver uh, oh, yes, we um, did, to yeah. help syndrome mm-hmm. with a liver capsule can rupture. Yeah. So, yeah, if you are in that situation um, and your uterus is intact and you're bleeding, think higher up in the... Yeah, find, find out what's bleeding. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Who wants to go next? Uh, yeah, sure, I can go next. Um, so we're talking about learning points and I think... Um, I one of my biggest learning points is you know there's no replacement for good IV access um, and you know just the importance of taking the time to um, ensure that you've got really good IV access which is exactly what we were talking about yesterday with um, a different podcast we were was it yesterday yeah um, anyway yep sorry segue <laughs> <laughs> um, so I had a case where uh, I was doing the the gynae oncology um, list here at um, our hospital and um, you know we had a really crumbly um, old lady and I had um, I think I inserted a 16 gauge cannula um, at the at the onset of surgery and then um, also gone ahead to insert a, um, a central line um, just because I knew we'd need presses etc for this patient um, and at one point in time, very vigilant with, uh, you know, looking at my uh, arterial line monitoring and just noticed um, a very, very low sort of pulse pressures and just assumed it was um, sort of mispositioned arterial line, you know, kinked or and I was playing around with the positioning of this arterial line and um, and then I could hear the sucker going and uh, within 
less than a minute we'd we'd lost two liters of blood and you know asked the surgeons to again help with um it was an open procedure to so help with uh, uh compression whilst um i actually got roger to come and help me and um at that point in time we uh, gained a bit of control resuscitated with blood and i desperately need uh, the 16 gauge cannula and the essential line was not enough f- to resuscitate this lady and we inserted oh we as in roger inserted a um 14 gauge external jugular line for me um again we made sure that the, pa- the patient was a well filled and then um ultrasound gu- ultrasound guided made sure we had a long cannula um but again those are little trip t- uh, tips and tricks i've learned along the way is you know if I uh, and and I have had that recently happen as well with a, a, re- a really significant um, patient with trauma, and um, you know at the onset I'd inserted a fourteen gauge cannula, and very quickly put a, a MAC line in, um, and the the MAC lines also have a central line um, capability uh, to be inserted through the MAC line, and so I inserted a MAC line into the right internal jugular. Sure, but just for anyone who doesn't know what a MAC line is, could you? Yeah. yeah. Um, can we put a photo of a Mac line? Yeah, I'll, there? I'll, I'll put it some photos and even a link to. There's a um, a good teaching video on how to put it in, which is from a cardiothoracic anaesthetic yeah. uh, group. Look, it's it, I, it's it's a bit um, it's re- it's really difficult, I guess, to explain what that is without um, having that in front of me to show you. But essentially, a Mac line is a a very wide bore um, central venous line, um, similar to a vascath, which we use in. Um, you know, for dialysis patients. If you didn't have a MAC line, you could easily insert a, a va- vascular catheter, so a, vas- a vascath, um, for, again, quite high volume resuscitation. Um, I was talking to Matt, uh, just Roger just uh, a few minutes ago, and um, uh, uh, my routine practice with a few patients used to be insertion of a RIC line, which is a rapid infuser catheter, and, you know, I'd, I'd use that through um, the anticubital fossa, um, and then connect that to the Belmont machines that we have here at um, our institution. But, you know, in the right patient and uh, depending on the particular pathology um, and obviously in the situation that requires that, uh, always thinking of uh, really good, adequate um, IV access, I think, is my biggest uh, learning point with these, with these major hemorrhages. Um, and yeah, just how it really yeah. helps um, save the save oh, the day essentially. And actually, my reflection <coughs> on external jugular lines recently is that they're a bit hit and miss. Oh, absolutely. But we did use oh, we did use it in that case. I remember. Yeah. But um, but we were very um, vigilant about our insertion as well. I do recall we you know didn't just run into like what I would do in you know the emergency department at a trauma hospital where you know you don't have IV access and you just go straight um, to. Um, put an external jugular line in and unfortunately I have had situations where those external jugular lines have um, I guess tissued and now you're dealing with a lot of fluid in the in sort of the anterior neck compartment you know we we were um, I must commend we were quite vigilant with um, our insertion we ensure that we'd resuscitated the patient Um, the surgeons had um, you know stopped and were putting a lot of compression on to give us time to catch up and then um, Roger ensured that we had a really long cannula used ultrasound guidance and you know just little tips and tricks that you um, used a, uh, you know used a syringe to it wasn't just a blind sort of um, yeah yeah but my experience is that it's, uh, 
probably about half the time I try to put one of them in cereal jugular, it doesn't yeah. turn out that well. And, it, the other, it, and then 50, 50% of the time it works fine. But yeah. I think it's a bit like putting um, peripheral cannons in the IJ. you got to be really sure that it's yeah. working well, it's yeah. in the right spot before you start giving lots of volume down it. And, in, you know, in, in, in retrospect, and it's always easy in retrospect, and I was very, um, I guess, upset with myself that I didn't um, have adequate um, IV access initially. But, you know, you'd think a 16-gauge and a central line would be enough. Um, it usually is. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, in retrospect, you know, had I known the pathology of this particular um, gynaeoncology procedure, you know, would I have um, opted um, to put a MAC line in along with a central line? I probably would have. Um, um, you know, the other alternative, if we don't have MAC lines, is also um, a central line, uh, a RIC a catheter, so a rapid infuser catheter, um, and then again my 14 or 16 gauge, whichever I inserted. Yep. So but this was unexpected. Please. It was, yeah, it yep. was, yeah. And I guess where, you know, things like aortic compression is useful then, isn't it? Absolutely. And, um, you know, it was a really good communication with the surgeons and um, every time I could hear the sucker and my blood pressure was, or not, my, not mine, but the patient's blood pressure was uh, in the boots, um, they would uh, do manual compression, oh. give me uh, adequate time to catch up with this resuscitation and then, um, you know, I think we lost the, 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 that patient lost about um, nine litres of blood. Yeah. Um, in that procedure, which is a lot, which, which is a lot, <laughs> um, you know, yeah. and and you know, I think that also brings me to my second point or learning point is also, you know, again, I, I reiterate the importance of really good um, intravenous access uh, in all our obstetric patients, and um, uh, and then the need of. Um, you know, for that patient who lost nine litres of blood, um, I think we resuscitated her with, uh, from memory, about five to six litres of, uh, sorry, five to six units of packed red blood cells. And I think two adult doses of cryoprecipitate is all we needed for that um, for that patient. Yeah, two or, <coughs> um, I think it was two or three, I can't remember. Okay, yeah, but, two or three, yeah. But yeah, so interestingly, like hemostasis at the end as measured by a viscoelastic device that we use, the Rotom, yep. showed that her hemostatic, yeah, hem- hemostatic sort of um, reserves were completely normal, normalised. Yeah. And, yep. and all she'd had was red cells and cryoprecipitate. Yeah. Um, Maybe tranexamic acid, but I can't tran- remember. Yeah, no. Yeah. She did, didn't she? We definitely yeah. gave tranexamic yeah. acid. We gave a couple of doses. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, interestingly, no need for plasma or um, platelets. Yeah. 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 But she probably, uh, being a patient with um, an advanced cancer, was um, quite... Well, you know, probably had very high platelets and quite high fibrinogen and things yep. prior to the start of the surgery because most cancer patients have um, the sort of an systemic inflammatory response that's been going on for months yep. and they're often very pro-coagulant, you know, um, in fact at risk of thrombosis often. Yep. So she was sort of set up ready to go for a bleed and yep. Uh, even though you know, it's not obviously something you want to happen. Yeah, and um, I think for anyone um, you know listening in different institutions, if you've never seen or used a MAC line, you know, have a look at the kit because it's not the same as a normal cent- central line um, in terms of the the dilators as well. So yeah. just have a look at the kit. You know, you don't want to be using a new kit that you're not familiar with in anger on the first. But you know, yeah, so you shouldn't if you're not familiar with it. You yeah, shouldn't d- put it in. definitely shouldn't put it in because yep. they, they've they're very wide ball. Um, catheters. Um, and my other comment is if, yeah, if you are putting it in and the patient's hypovolemic, you've got to make sure before you dilate it up that you are actually in the um, internal jugular vein and yep. not, not an artery or somewhere where you shouldn't be because it's not like a central line, yep. which mm. is 
a lot narrower. It's not very forgiving if you dilate a nine French, uh, yeah, the carotid artery up with a nine French device. Yeah, and in the setting of a hypovolemic patient, it may be exactly. Yeah, you um, might see the aorta and think it's a compressible. The, yeah, the carotid. Um, the, if the carotid, so the, yeah. carotid. the um, internal jugular may be uh, hard to, you know, almost um, mm. invisible because it's collapsed, and the carotid artery may well be easy to collapse with the probe, like yeah. like a vein, yeah. because the blood pressure is only forty or something mm. ridiculous. Um, so it could uh, can be quite uh, could be quite tricky. Yeah. yeah. And and you know as uh, again, if you've never seen or used a a RIC line, um, definitely look at that as well as an option yeah. because, you know, there are some patients where if they're coagulopathic or uh, on certain medications and you probably don't, you know, if they're hypervolemic, you probably don't want to get close to the neck and, um, you know, no, and right. we don't have um, ephemeral access accessible to our bleeding patients and therefore, you know, um, using a RIC catheter, um, which I've used on multiple patients who've got, um, you know, uh, abnormal placentations, so the placenta accreta sort of group, um, and I often put a, a RIC line in those patients, especially if they come in with an antepartum hemorrhage. Um, and, you know, I can't remember the exact, um, what did you say, how many lead, uh, how many moles per with the RIC um, so the different devices have published sort of flow rates, yep. and I think um, the RIC line that says you can give 15 litres an hour, which is like, um, that's without pressure bags yep. or, or pressure devices. Yeah. Uh, the MAC line, surprisingly, is 29 litres an hour, so yep. that's like twice mm. as much. Yeah. Um, 14-gauge canyons are pretty similar to, um, they're a little bit less than a RIC line, yep. but they're still really good. Yeah. Although the, 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 recline, the recline definitely works very yeah, well, especially better, if, if you've got, um, you know, if you've got your Belmont or your yeah. Level One or fourteen gauge cannulas, yep. they're short, yep, they're exactly. quite big gauge. I yep. think mm-hmm. they're pretty good. Exactly. So, and they're simple, and they're you know they're not they're in the arm usually, yep. not in the neck. So it's yep. not tiger country. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so yes, good IV access. Yep. Okay, Matt, your turn. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> Make it a good one. Uh, yeah, exactly. How long, have, how long <laughs> have we got? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Oh, look, I've probably stringed together a few learning points yep. from yep. a few cases over the years, and I, look, I can't, I can't agree more. Shelby, yep. just the ba- doing the basics well, having good IV access. Yep. And I think in the context of a obstetric patient coming up for emergency cesarean sections where they maybe had the cannula in for some time, um, there's sometimes a little bit of pressure to establish a block for an emergency cesarean section we don't always just check that the cannula is working quite as well as we should yeah i think just i I think back over some of the cases and you know just making sure the fluids are working well the cannula is well sighted Uh, and also think what way where you're heading do we need to put another cannula in before we start yeah um just some cases done recently with fibroid uteruses in cesarean sections or low-line placentas doing that early on is worth it um, other things, um, never believe anybody um, <laughs> <laughs> comes to mind. <laughs> believe nothing. I do remember. Um, so, um, so is, are you sure there's a group and save for this patient? Yes. And um, <laughs> as we were opening up the abdomen, there was this simultaneous phone ringing as the surgeon said, oh, my God, it's an accretor. And it was the laboratory saying the sample hadn't been correctly labelled on the group of holes. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, you know, so you're, you, you're, yeah, you know, I'm yeah. going to earn my money now. Yeah. And yeah. then, you know, thinking about, you know, what, what do you do in those situations then? Temporising measures. Um, so aortic cable compression or aortic compression rather. Mm. And think about O negative blood. 
yeah. which we kind of don't talk too much about anymore, but I think there are definitely indications yeah. where we should do that. We should use yeah. O-negative blood. Yep, I and, agree. Um, so yeah, we, what's your view on that, Rod? So we talk about the... Uh, so um, sometimes sometimes we run a major hemorrhage workshop for uh, the NCA sort of continuing education uh, um, that we have to do and one of the things that we've talked about in the last few years is this idea of the traffic light system where you're looking at the patient's physiology and um, it's just a concept really a way of sort of assessing the severity of the hemorrhage and if they look like they're exsanguinating and they're going to die you know they've got their tachycardic and their peri-arrest then yeah, you should just be giving empiric blood products. Mm. So that includes O-negative blood. You know, you shouldn't be waiting for a cross-match. You should be giving tranexamic acid, some sort of fibrinogen-like fibrinogen concentrate. You don't want to be waiting for blood tests or, you know, mm. group and saves or all that sort of stuff. And then um, then there's a group of patients who are sort of in the amber or orange or green where they've had some bleeding or there is some bleeding that's going on, but it's not immediately going to cause mm. their demise. And you've got time to wait for those things. And, of course, all that, like you're saying, it depends where you work. You know, mm-hmm. there's some, some people who listen to this, this podcast I know who work in regional peripheral hospitals, rural hospitals, you know, and the turnaround time for a, a group and save, you know, they've got to call in a technician who has to mm-hmm. come drive in and do it. And so actually, you know, formally cross-matching blood mm-hmm. or, or thawing things uh, can take well over an hour uh, or, or, or can be like six hours because it's got to come by plane, so... Yeah, but even in tertiary hospitals, we should just give O negative in, in really life threatening situations. Yeah, it's I th- definitely I think food for thought because I had a case um, uh, where uh, you know, we had a, a major sort of um, postpartum hemorrhage for, from a patient who'd had a home birth um, and obviously had no bloods, no group and hold, um, and obviously no cannula when she arrived um, crashing into the, through the doors. Um, and once we got her off to sleep and I'd ordered uh, O-negative blood, I got a phone call saying, are you sure you want to give this patient O-negative blood? She's um, she's young, um, you know, she's potentially um, going to develop antibodies, um, uh, you know, with uh, subsequent pregnancies. Um, can you just wait? Um, and luckily I'd already inserted an art line and sent off um, uh, an arterial blood gas and I think her haemoglobin came back at 50 and... From memory, I think we was on about twenty or thirty of metaraminol. Um, yeah, you know, and there's obviously there's there's, a, there's situations where we definitely need to consider O negative blood oh. as our. Um, yep, as it's a good point um, actually that to make sure you do take off some blood for the, for for the group and save before you start filling them up with the O negative. Yeah, because then it's going to be hard mm-hmm. if the patient gets like um, large amounts of blood from someone else for the lab to do a proper mm-hmm. a proper group and screen. Yep. Okay, Carry that, was, on that was good. Yeah, that was an important, interesting point. You had a train of thought that we felt. Yes. That's caffeine deficient. Yeah, he's had a long day. He's been, yeah, he's been working very if hard. I can chip in with another learning point. Um, well, I'm not going to give a full anecdote, but I think probably my main one is like when when you're involved in a major hemorrhage, you've got to like recruit help right mm. at the start. Like you cannot deal with these cases by yourself. And it doesn't matter where you are, phone for help early and get people to come and do stuff for you. Mm. Um, and, and if the surgeons um, haven't done it, do it for them as well. So they shouldn't be doing it by themselves either. Mm. They need help. And mm. sometimes they're they're caught in the headlights a little bit and they need uh, your help to to, um, 
to ask a you know a theatre nurse or yourself to phone to get someone to come and give them a hand. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It's a team. It's a team event. It's not. Um, so if you're especially, I guess, if you're working uh, after hours in a hospital where there's often only you know a few of you, um, or you're in a hospital, private hospital, re, uh, regional hospital, um, somewhere in the country, and there's usually uh, people around who can mm. help you. I don't know. Yep. And even it's just, you know, getting an extra pair of hands yep. and eyes to check mm. blood products, you know, if you're giving an adult pill of fibrinogen, some yep. other bags to check. Yep. Um, so, and the, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be anaesthetic, hands or eyes. Um, yep. Just some other po- learning points that come to mind. Um, we may have mentioned on the previous podcast. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we're repeating the same podcast <laughs> and we're not giving any, any real cases. I'm kind of having flashbacks. <laughs> We have mentioned a few real cases. Yeah, we have, yeah. Yeah, okay. I've got so many, but they all seem the same. Yeah. <laughs> all blur and disastrous. Yeah. <laughs> all ruptured uteruses and accretors, most of them. And calling for help. Yes, yeah. Mm. I do remember lots of tra- uh, trauma uh, patients I had to look after when I was um, a younger and worked at Royal Perth. Uh, I do remember a ruptured splenic artery aneurysm that was involved in. Yeah. You're still young, Roger. I know. <laughs> Don't feel it. <laughs> I'm a bit caffeine efficient too. Um, oh, the learning yeah, points. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, beware the underweight or, or the normal weight yep. patient. In terms of you know blood loss, can equate to quite large percentages of circulating volume. Yep. And so if you're looking after say a 50 kilogram patient they lose two liters of blood that's about i believe 40 percent of their circulating volume and and we we do overlook that sometimes and likewise you know in our rush to get point of care hemoglobin estimations we can do it very early on in a hemorrhage and overestimate their yes because hemoglobin concentration because we haven't caused any dilution yeah we haven't given any any volume yeah and i think that's you know we we commonly do do that sometimes Mm. um and and those both those points have been reiterated a few times now in the um uh, confidential inquiries into maternal deaths. Yep. So in our rush to use point of care devices, we may just forget thinking that this is only going to get worse. I always think of it as a bit like you know having um, imagine a bath of blood. Have I used this analogy before? No. <laughs> no, this is good. This is good. Where are you going? This doesn't sound very. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't sound like a family show, um, podcast anymore. <laughs> bath of blood. <laughs> so Warning for your daughters. Yeah. 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 Hey children, yeah. if you if you've got this on um, loudspeaker, this is now the time to put on your headphones. <laughs> so we've got a bath of blood, and we 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 we, um, we uh, measure the hemoglobin concentration in it, and then take the plug out, and then measure it again. When the path is now half full, and the hemoglobin concentration is the same, if you haven't turned the taps on. Yes. Yeah. That was oh. my analogy. Oh, well, it's like not that. quite as um, graphic no, as I was expecting. No. <laughs> <laughs> but how you get the bath of blood. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, that's yeah, so if you, if you do suddenly lose blood very rapidly, your hemoglobin will just change. stay the same, just yeah. stays the same. Yeah. And, yep. and, I, you know, and we get the arterial lining quick and we do the first gas. So just be careful of that. Yeah, so usually like we'll that. see if they're um, – you might see like a acidosis and base excess mm. and lactate up, but the hemoglobin concentration might be quite still quite high. Yeah. Um, I've got one more case which I think has got a slightly different learning point. Um, so I'm not going to use all the actual details of this case, but I was called to review a patient as a duty anaesthetist because um, they were worried. They phoned me up and said, can you come and review this patient? We're worried she's had a pulmonary embolism and um, we're thinking about sending her to 
another hospital, but maybe she's, my got, case? maybe she's got an infection. No, it's not. It's before <laughs> your time. <laughs> and I came up and um, and basically this, this patient was just very tachycardic, but had normal blood pressure. And then, but it turns, uh, but, but examining the history, she had actually had an emergency caesarean three hours earlier, and she'd only just arrived from recovery. Uh, and I was worried. Uh, and her blood pressure by the time I got there was a little bit low. I think it was like 95 or something like that. Anyway, cut a long story short, we um, we did eventually get her into a critical care area. I think I got her into recovery because that was the closest, the quickest and easiest place to take her because she'd just come from there and it was empty. There wasn't any other patients in there. And I did a gas. Uh, got put an art line in and I did a gas and the hemoglobin was a bit low. and But it wasn't terrible. Um but the blood pressure was like 60 over 30. So then I gave a bag of Hartman's and the blood pressure went up to like 95 over 60. And I was like, oh, that helped. And then mm. did another gas and the hemoglobin was a lot lower than it had been mm. before. Mm. And then suddenly the blood pressure was 60 over 30 again. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Mm. <laughs> it keeps going down. And when I give some fluid, it gets better. And the hemoglobin is getting more and more dilute. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is not a PE. <laughs> mm. It's um, uh, you know, bleeding. And it turned out it was actually bleeding. Uh, there was about three litres of occult blood in the abdomen. So the yeah, learning point there, I guess, is that um, it's it was there was no other indication. She wasn't complaining of mm-hmm. abdominal pain. They had examined her abdomen and it didn't look distended. There was no PV bleeding uh, that was obvious. So, you know, the, it was just accumulating and obviously um, it was it was completely hidden and it was really unclear that she was bleeding. Mm. So I guess that's another mm. learning point um, is to always be suspicious or, or uh, that any sort of deterioration in a maternal uh, obstetric patient could be occult bleeding. Obviously it could be lots of other things too, so don't fixate on just bleeding either. But, uh, yeah, I thought that's an important point. Yep. Especially when it can be concealed. Yeah, yep. both. Yeah, and I guess um, maybe in retrospect, this this case was actually quite a long time ago. But if someone can image with ultrasound, um, but even then, it's sometimes you know it's sometimes difficult. Yeah, um, mm. I've had a very similar situation to you were saying, and uh, eventually when we took her to theatre, there was over three point five liters of hemoperitoneum in there. But um, initially, she was just managed as hypotension, a bit of fluid given. Yeah. Um, and, you know, by the time she came to theatre, systolic was less than 60, haemoglobin was less than 60. Yep. Um, yeah. And it, and it was just um, concealed bleeding. Yeah, it doesn't even have to be like a patient who's had surgery. You know, sometimes they can, um, people can rupture their uteruses or uh, can develop bleeding um, yep. just during childbirth um, or various other things. So, it's, yeah, obviously ectopics are the classic, aren't mm. they? Yeah. Misdiagnosed, yeah. Any other learning points that we haven't covered? I think we've done them, covered most of them. Mm. Let's call it quits. <laughs> or while we're behind, <laughs> or speaking. ahead, or maybe we're behind. I don't know. <laughs> Matt's nodding, but he's not speaking much. He's <laughs> forgot that it's an audio. Uh, it's not a visual. It's not yeah, a visual medium that we're using today. tonight. Uh, yeah, I feel like Matt's just had a long day. <laughs> it's been a long day. <laughs> it's been a long day. Mm. Okay, thanks everyone. Thank you, Roger. Thank you, Roger. Bye. You have been listening to the Obstetric Anesthesia Basics podcast series. A short podcast series designed for anaesthesia trainees new to obstetric anaesthesia. These discussions are designed to encourage uh, understanding and appreciation of the challenges and issues that are frequently encountered in this area of anaesthesia. However, there is no such thing as one correct way to practice obstetric anaesthesia 
Equipment, drugs, facilities, protocols and practices will and do vary across hospitals, geographical locations and time. You should always ensure that you follow the appropriate practice in your own institutions. Thank you for listening. <laughs>